one, fill, fill in the blank. Quentin Tarantino has a foot fetish. Foot fetish. And if you look in the IMDb trivia, it says signature shot feet. <laughs> Why doesn't it say Quentin Tarantino filling his spank back up? <laughs> the, there's the scene where Margaret Qualley just shoves her feet against the windshield of the car, yeah. and it's just like put them on the glass. This gross, like, like, yeah, no, it's on glasses, grip, but well, uh, it's he's like, oh, I've already seen the feet. Maybe you should put them on the glass. It's hot, and it's not like you, you don't look up at an Otto Preminger movie, and it says the signature shot: a girl with a big ass sits on a cake. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it's, well, you it's were, funny you mentioned that because um, Harley Quinn, uh, uh, oh fuck. Uh, yeah. Smith has a cameo. She's one of the, one of the Manson, Manson girls. She's actually yeah. the one who comes to the door. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's also, like, like all the girls are pretty much barefoot. Mm. And I can't imagine, like, what you must think of your daughter. is like, yeah, you know, my daughter went to act in this Quentin Tarantino movie and he was doing his weird pervy thing. Yeah, she's... My, uh, I'm Kevin Smith. I, uh, I have some pull in this town. My daughter just got her big break. She's barefoot in a Quentin Tarantino yeah. movie. Now, I guess, now, on the other hand, the flip side is, I think, other than that, Quentin Tarantino is pretty asexual. He just had a kid. Oh, did he really? I, oh, no way. I, yeah, I listened to, the reason why I watched the movie is because I listened to, he's doing interviews about the novelization of the movie. Oh, so, oh. And so he apparently lives in Israel and married, married an Israeli woman and just had a baby. Oh, I had no idea. So, I guess, So I guess on the feet, I guess her ovaries are in her feet. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, so the thing I wanted to bring up was, so Joe Rogan had him on, mm. and the clips come up sometimes on YouTube. So it was about the Bruce Lee controversy. Right. And the explanation always was, not from him necessarily, although maybe it's from him initially, was, well, uh, Brad Pitt is an unreliable narrator, mm. and because it's sort of him remembering the incident where him and Bruce Lee fight, he obviously remembers Bruce Lee as a piece of shit and him being this Kung Fu master where, you know, later in the movie, you see Bruce Lee is a much nicer guy when he's training um, Sharon Tate. Mm -hmm. But then he sort of doubles down and he's like, well, you see, Brad Pitt was like in World War II and he's like a trained killer. And I was like, dude. Yeah, no, I don't. There's no there's nothing about the movie that makes it a, a second person narrative. Uh, so I don't think that that's valid. I, but I think it's like... Um, it's like a kind of like a swan song for the like macho man, like the stoic macho man. Mm -hmm. And so like Bruce Lee would have been a counterculture. Like, I think that's what's actually going on is that yeah. it's, it is the scene is informed by the attitude mm -hmm. of the macho stoic 60s man who is being usurped by the new man who is. Uh, like all the things that Bruce Lee represents, like the spiritualism and, and interracial relationships and uh, not just brute force, but like uh, philosophy and, and flexibility and all that, like all that kind of things from the East. And But because the movie is ultimately about like Quentin Tarantino, his nostalgia for that kind of person, then Bruce Lee is going to be less than an attract, like less than yeah. an ideal man in that scenario. And yeah. the world, but the world like left that behind. And I was just saying how like to somebody we talked about the movie and like 
the like Quentin Tarantino himself is that thing where like once Quentin Tarantino's done making movies, they're not going to let people make movies the way that Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. made movies anymore. Like we're in a new age of movie making. Mm-hmm. So like there's a meta aspect of it where he's like elegizing the people of like the cowboys in his youth that faded away while at the same time elegizing himself mm-hmm. and his like that 90s indie movie making. Yeah which is now done too. And you can't do that anymore. You're like that, that attitude doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, so I just think that that mm-hmm. like Bruce Lee has made a symbol mm-hmm. in that moment, which is like not necessarily fair to Bruce mm-hmm. Lee. My point almost was it, it was something that pissed a lot of people off for mm-hmm. whatever reason. And instead of like, and, and like I said, a narrative had arisen to sort of at least partially explain it away or whatever, but it doesn't matter because he doubles down on it. Yeah. You can't let and, it, he can't just let it go. Yeah. He has to like reassert and just shoot him. In his weird, I had another role. So what did you think of that movie? We can, we can talk about this movie for a couple minutes. Okay. I thought it was three quarters good. And then mm-hmm. the last court, like the last, once they start with the, um, exposition around what happens in Italy, it seems like they had to really make a band aid to get around mm-hmm. all the stuff that they had to cut out of the movie. Yeah. And then the whole sequence with the Manson people, I really didn't like, Mm-hmm. I thought the violence was like so ridiculously over the top that it was like beyond the point of even making going for hard hardcore shocking violence. Like it went so far beyond that to become parody almost. Yeah. And then having just listened recently to you must remember this is version telling of the Manson family. Mm-hmm. There were certain choices about the Manson family that like I really didn't like. Like it was sexied up. Yeah. And it was like listening to that you understand like how exploited those women were mm-hmm. and having a having a greater understanding of the the Manson story didn't help in my appreciation of the Quentin Tarantino version of the Manson yeah. story. It doesn't feel like a Quentin Tarantino movie until it does and when it does it goes in like probably way too hard. Yeah, and I I think that that's why like I liked that first three quarters is because it was a different thing from him Mm -hmm. and then he yeah he just kind of like really fully gives into his less mature instincts and like that like he can't help himself no yeah like he he really can't help himself Mm -hmm. in the end of like actually when i was thinking about the foot thing and i was like the the he's just such a fetishistic filmmaker it can be it gets perverse like i think most of his late movies or not even late movies like i think most of his movies have become like somewhat perverse like air quotes perverse mm-hmm. um because he is such like a fetishized a fetishistic filmmaker yeah. and like he loses the service to a bigger story that like where he was like at his best i had um shit i had two more i had two revelations about that because i just actually watched um death proof mm. which is not good no which it wasn't good i didn't like it back then didn't like it now. It was a gimmick. But I've, I've like, and I don't think this is true, but I don't know if anyone's ever floated the theory that uh, Brad Pitt's character is actually Stuntman Mike. Oh, really? I mean, I, I hadn't read it, but that's that's like an interesting sort of thing to sort of think about. And then the other thing I watched was the, the director's cut of Hateful Eight, um, which is a four one-hour episode series on Netflix. That's brutal. It's brutal, and it's... The, yeah, I'm surprised you're not still watching it. I, I can't imagine that it has an end. It, 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 I mean, it's the same as... It's just so padded out, mm. and, like, if you thought it was bloated before, you have no idea. Wow. 
Anyway, that's the Tarantino break. Yeah, that's this a is little Tarantino yeah, talk. A little taste of Tarantino. Taste of Tarantino. Taste of Tarantino. And then we're just waiting for that. Uh, he's supposed to do that Star Trek. Yeah, he's supposed to do lots of things, or maybe not. I think I'll do one more movie. I well, he said in the Marin thing, he said that the the retirement talk was all like blown out of proportion, mm-hmm. that he's just going to keep making movies until he can't. I mean, he makes movies, what, once every... He's yeah. Like, he's on, like, on the James Cameron schedule, almost. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot left in yeah. him with, with just his his rate of his rate of production mm-hmm. and his age. Yeah. As a, as a complete non-sequitur, this is my fav- one of my favorite movie quotes ever. Mm. And it's, there has never been a greater disparity between Avatar's box office and its cultural impact. <laughs> which I'm like, yeah, it's true. It's a movie no one gives a shit about. But. There's, like, the... Point zero zero one percent of people who really care about it and like get surgery to look like Navi's. Oh, and, and they shit feel like, like that. sad that they can't live on a yeah Navi world or whatever it's called. And then Pandora. Yes, Pandora. Because yeah. and just in case you're wondering if there's any subtext there. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, everybody else who mm-hmm. doesn't care, and then they're like, "We're gonna make ten more of these in four D." <laughs> yeah, no thanks. No thank you, James well, who Cameron. Who knows? Take a seat. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so that's not what we're here to talk about. This is sort of a special edition of Trash South Street. Trash South Street presents Trash South Street 2, Slater Kitty. Yes. Slater Kitty. That's good. And our Kitty I, had f- I had five more and I didn't write them down. Oh. And I, the only one I remember is Slater Kitty. <laughs> Slater I'm all, Kitty. I'm a little annoyed about it. It's all good. So we're going to talk about that. Wait, you didn't. Nobody introduced themselves. So yeah, I'm Lou. I'm Jamie Z. I'm <laughs> Matt. Matt, we're Jamie and we talk about movies. And, or no, we don't even talk. Well, I guess we did talk about. Movies. We talked about a movie, but now we're going to talk about a band. So you've been on, yeah. So this is Slater Kinney. We previously did a. Uh, oh, we did another Slater Kinney. We did one where we talked about the Slater Kinney, you know, our, our playlist, the live and the, the live, live record, yeah. And that one gets a lot of hits actually. When you look yeah. at the metrics, that one gets us. It's for just Slater Kinney fans who hate it. That's good SEO. Yeah. All right. Oh well. Even well, though one might argue, I'm sitting on two podcasts worth of audio already, and it's grossly irresponsible to add a third to that pile it's your empire your podcasting so empire be, i mean so i wanted to do this one in part because i'm just not gonna have time to do it it'll be like october mm. on the regular schedule by the time we get to this one and two i think there's some interesting things to talk about and it's sort of going to frame the later discussion and then we're gonna talk about the album so this is from Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl by Carrie Brownstein and you never read this book i never i never read it. it's worth reading in part because it's one of those books that gives you sort of a taste of what it was like to be a musician in the 90s, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. And it probably gives you a lot of insight into Slater Kinney as a band and Carrie Brownstein as a person. Sometimes I think when people talk about the scenes that they belonged in as in a memoir form, they can be a little megalomaniacal. Is it? Is it? Do you get a sense that it's somewhat even keeled or does she make it out to be like I existed in the most important time in music history. She's actually a lot harder on herself Mm. than probably is warranted for that whole era. I don't think she's very specific about, you know, this is the greatest year with the greatest band. It's a lot of the grunge people. It's a lot of the early English punk people and a Mm. lot of the grunge people can be really hard to listen to talking about like the their own histories because of the way they talk about that. That kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, not so much here. I mean, they do kind of play up, the, you know, we're, we're the outsiders and we don't play that way a little bit, but it's a lot of, 
I was like a socially awkward person and kind of a fuck up and I was so much self-sabotaging and mm. et cetera and so on. But she also talks about early life and, but a lot of it is just sort of the evolution of a band in the nineties that was sort of outside the whole nineties thing that sort of captured in bricks are heavy or any other, like I'm fascinated by the whole nineties yeah. path and how, you know, eventually it sort of caused music to collapse right. as a viable commercial art form and arguably Slater Kinney might be one of the last bands of that scale that could still work full time as musician. Well, sort of, which we'll, we can address that as well. Well, that I, that I think specifically informs some of the things I'm sure we'll talk about yeah, as far think, as the direction that they're moving. Well, so I think that was, yeah, maybe part of the problem. Yeah. Well, it's very, <laughs> I think it's very noticeable that they're making choices to talk directly to the audience that exists for them. Yeah, so we're getting to that later. Yeah, but first I figured, get yeah, this. we're getting ahead you of know. ourselves. We're 15 minutes into what was going to be the opening quote. Okay. <laughs> right. So, the beginning of the chapter is they're sort of talking about how they never had a manager. Uh, Slater Kinney never allowed ourselves that luxury. We divvied up tasks among ourselves from taxes to travel arrangements. We were three very capable people who liked the various business roles, so taking on the added responsibility for the most part didn't feel like a burden. But there were also times when we needed help. Three is a volatile number for a creative endeavor and partnership. It's always uneven. It requires equality in order to achieve steadiness. When there's synchronicity and harmony, it's electric. But more often than not, it's two against one, an incessant ganging up, with the dominance and alliances constantly shifting. I talked with Corn about Janet. Janet and I talked about Corn, and Corn and Janet talked about me. So I think that's going to play. That's, like, ooh, very interesting. And there's a lot of like, like I said, she's pretty insightful into certain things. So the uh, the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. and I can't imagine that anybody listening to this that would bother to listen to this doesn't know. In the last album cycle, Janet Weiss abruptly leaves Slater Kinney, yeah. and this is the first album that they have that Slater Kinney has been made as a creative duo. Yeah. That's a conversation that we're really going to have after we talk about the album. Yeah, no, I just, I just, we just to give a, a little bit of a because I do think to to contextualize mm-hmm. why that quote might be particularly yeah. interesting. And like, I think this album coming out explains a lot of what may or may not have happened, or yeah, or created the vacuum in which this would mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. Anyway, the album we're talking about is Path. Of, well, the album we're talking about is Center Would Hold, but where where Adam we're talking about is Path of Wellness. Came out June eleventh, their tenth release, I believe. I'll take your word for it. I think it's ten. It's weird because I noticed that. Um, so the same day, Garbage released an album, very good album. Is it good? Like Garbage. I like it. It's it might come up a couple of times here um, yeah. thematically, but Gar- Garbage, which has been around longer, actually has less releases. Is because the night cover on that the same exact version that was out already, or did they re-record it? And it's the same. So they have, um, they did their album and they did a bonus disc. Yeah. Or bonus. And it's essentially all the random stuff garbage recorded over the years. So it's oh, the, okay. Because of the Night, a couple of singles. Are, the one like she does with Brody, mm. the one she does with X, a cover of Starman, stuff like that. But anyway. Okay, just a B-side. Yeah, so you know, it's stuff I'll that's find. already has okay. been out there for okay. It's stuff that all came out on various record store days. All right, I understand. As it so happens. So Path of Wellness. Some would say a return to form. I don't, it's not a complete return to form, which I felt like after listening multiple times. I think as I really listen to every song, Mm -hmm. I think there are songs that are, harken 
back to different times, different sounds that they've had. Mm-hmm. Even as late as I, there's a song on this album that I think sounds like a song that could have been on No Cities. So even like later, yeah. There's songs that seem like an entirely new sound, mm-hmm. and then there's songs that I feel like sound like a hybrid. Yeah. Where there's parts of the songs that sound old, there's parts of the songs that sound new. Yeah. Now, one thing I noticed is there, there isn't a lot of guitar layering on this album that they've traditionally done. I noticed that too. There's there's very few songs that I think could have been made as three-piece songs mm-hmm. in their previous existence, even if they were not committed to one sound or another. And that's sort of part of the thing is this album has a band behind it. Yes. It had three... I looked at the personnel. Yeah. And... It had three different drummers, mm-hmm. the guy that they're going to tour with, yeah, some other bozo, mm-hmm. and then Angie Boylan, who was the tour drummer for um, Center Will Not Hold, yeah. she drums on a couple tracks. The guitar player they took on that tour mm-hmm. plays guitar on a couple of tracks, but then the only other listed guitar players are uh, Carrie and Corin mm-hmm. with the new touring guitarist, uh, Fabi Reyna. Who... Well, I have stuff to say about that. It's all well, right. who I thought you were going to add in that she's probably most known for being the founder of She Shreds magazine. Oh, so, yeah, I was going to. I was yeah. trying to find... She has music. Mm-hmm. I could not really find any of it. As near as I can tell, she plays very Mexican, Tejano-inspired electric guitar. Hmm. She had an album out. I couldn't find it anywhere to listen to it. And she actually put out stuff on a punk label, a like a Southern California punk label that I actually... Like some bands, or no, not uh, Athens, ah. but released a lot of bands from Southern California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the the label that puts out Fred Schneider's solo stuff. Oh, really? Huh. She put a she did some stuff with, mm-hmm. but Fabi Reyna, who I think is a, I like all her soloing on the Slater Kinney live stuff that's out. Yeah, but does she's not on the album at all? Yeah, I noticed that, too. which is weird. And then they have an organ player full yeah. time mm-hmm. and a bass player full time, which. Just, sort of, did I talk to you about the whole, was it you or Jamie, that the whole, especially on the West Coast, Riot Girl sound, essentially evolved because no no one owned a bass? You did, yeah, you've it's, said that to me. It's basically as simple as that, Yeah, which is why I like that sound evolved, because you had to fill in like the blend. So it's interesting that they would kind of come around. Mm. And it does give it a bit of a different dynamic, and like I said, the big thing is that they don't really layer the guitars. If you watch like the live performances, they don't seem to play the guitars as much as you'd think. You They're know. all playing. It's a two. It's also the songs that are out live too. Mm-hmm. I think are the songs that I would think of as not the traditional Slater Kinney sound. They're the new sound or the hybrid sound. Yeah. I feel like it's three people playing one guitar part. Yeah. And that's why it's like you kind of watch them. One carries noodling around on a lead, and then like Corn mm-hmm. is adding in some guitar sounds. Fabi is like standing there oddly in the midground, which is a whole other thing. He plays cowbell on one song. That cowbell I wrote down, I cowbell with a question mark. <laughs> I actually laugh because if you watch uh, the tiny desk, you just see her just playing the cow. Yeah. yeah, the cowbell is an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. But then, and then she's basically just waiting around to, to solo. And so, yeah, it seems like three people playing one mm-hmm. part. It's also weird to me while we're talking about weird things about this album before we get into it. Mm-hmm. Even though she definitely sings more on this album than Center Won't Hold, that Corn Tucker doesn't sing that much. Yeah, there's. I was happy to hear more Corin. Yeah. But whereas pre-hiatus, I would have described Corin as the singer of Slater well, Kinney. Yeah, yeah, up until... And Carrie is the mm-hmm. primary guitar player. Mm-hmm. That Yeah, and then after Portlandia, 
I would assume, or that was always my impression, that that Portlandia had a lot to do with the fact that Carrie was now some, like the de facto front woman in Corrin was singing much, much less. Yeah. And it could be other things too. She just might be like, I need a break from singing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, and none of this is like, I, this is all observational. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's bad that they would choose to make a more commercial album or that they would make the intelligent decision to have the most visible person be at the front of the band yeah, or that they would go with new sounds or anything. Mm-hmm. And I, we did haven't generalized about the album at all. I like the, I think it's a good album. I do. Yeah, I do too. Uh, of the three, I think it's my favorite of the three albums that they've made after they've reunited after the hiatus. I would agree. Okay. I was thinking gonna, about this. You're thinking about that. I definitely, I mean, it, well, I was trying to I think we all, I think everybody in human existence can agree that center won't hold is a turd that nobody likes. And I have theories on that too. And No Cities is very decent, but I think this album is is more of a toe tapper and a crowd pleaser and I like it a lot more. And I think it's closer to their original song. Yeah, and it it has there's no need for them to declare that they're this is new stuff. It's mm-hmm. okay for them to rely on some of their older tricks that their fans like and they're preaching to the choir, you know, in both literally and figuratively with their sound and their message. And that's fine. And then also, I mean, the, the theme of the, these are all pandemic songs. Mm-hmm. It's a, it was made during a pandemic and pretty much every song addresses something I'd about the pandemic. Every album that came out, yeah. In the last years, a pandemic album. I wrote... And they almost all get one star knocked off for just being pandemic. Yeah, but I, I wrote in my in my notes, pandemic album, way better than Trump album. Yeah, oh I yeah, no, I agree. I would rather have a pandemic album than a Trump album, because yeah. most of those albums were not very good. Well, a lot of Center Road Hold was a Trump album. Well, I and like the, the last Screaming Females album, and a lot of stuff. And it just, it's so... I don't think people were in a, a mind space to make engaging art, timeless art at that point. Yeah. The, the notion of comfort mm-hmm. was like a very hot topic over the pandemic because people were either being very nostalgic or they wanted things that were comforting. So it would make a lot of sense to have an album that has a lot of sounds that harken back to older music. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily older Slater Kitty music. Yes. I mean, well, yeah, that, I think there's very, a yeah. strong classic rock yeah, element to this to this album, which is interesting. Yeah, and I and I'm sure it's coincidental the fact that Saint Vincent, you know, who is very close friends with Carrie Brownstein, mm. released. I said, oh yeah, she released a very experimental album based on what was very mainline rock of its era. So. Yeah, the, she made a Steely Dan album. And, and that one was a lot more overt about doing that, and I don't think... Well, yeah, they, I mean, and, but St. Vincent is also, like, very adept at packaging and marketing and stuff. Like, she's a very brand-conscious person mm-hmm. in an Andy Warhol kind of a, a way, a big B mm-hmm. brand art, you know, like the brand as art, or, like, presenting herself as a package. Yeah. And... Because we talked about this uh, previously, we independently arrived at the idea that this album is about Slater Kinney finally asserting the notion of the brand of their group. Yeah. Which, and I think, I don't know if it's to hammer down an, an identity now that Janet is not in the group, or if it is 
like you said, as being one of the last band that can exist as a commercially viable music, rock music entity, yeah. that they're going to target a very specific segment of the available audience, yeah. which is like people our age, people who are somewhere around 40, you know, between mm-hmm. late thirties to 50, likely to listen to NPR or watch highfalutin comedies uh, like uh, Marin or Portlandia or talk about Quentin Tarantino movies for 20 minutes yeah. or, you know, like kind of older moms, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, they very much barely got in through the door. It's yeah. sort of like in Return of the Jedi when the Millennium Falcon barely escapes the exploding second Death Star. Mm. Because I think they're like there are bands who would be on that level who came like five, even like a couple years later, who all have to work straight jobs. Or and even other bands of that era who did not quite you you kind of get lost in the in the sauce a little bit and some of it also is like other theories that you know because Slater Kinney did take time off and the fact that they both continue to make music or all three of them actually continue to make music afterwards which a lot like while it was still sustainable and they could probably get by on name especially Corin Tucker could get. Like, had credibility because of name recognition alone and being so influential in the scene. That people would show up to see her. That people would show up to see her. And that doesn't take anything away from her. I was, a Thousand Years is one of my favorite albums. Yeah, that's a good one. And then, you know, Carrie Brownstein, while probably not as well-known at that point. I mean, probably as well-known, actually, from the scene. Was able to propel into, and then she got, you know, started doing stuff with Fred Armisen. And well, you're, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that Fred Armisen and his unknown female friend walking into an office and pitching our comedy show is a much harder sell than Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein, formerly of Slater Kinney, like a, a, which, a cultural icon which to was certain the, people. Which was when Portlandia came out, literally every single person I know is like, you know the girls like guitarist from Slater Kinney, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, really? That's beside the point there. But basically they were able to kind of, they were able to sort of sustain themselves. Yeah long enough to kind of pick up where it was sort of an event for them to start performing again. Slater Kinney was a band that was not really affected by the fallout, the collapse of the nineties, we'll call it. Well, and it's like the live, the, the decline of the live music industry, mm-hmm. the death of rock music, the yeah. non-existence of rock radio, because that's, if you have music that can be played on NPR, like NPR is the only outlet in America, pretty much in a widespread way mm-hmm. that is playing contemporary rock music. Yeah. And so like the fact that they were already embedded with that mm-hmm. audience, you, when you come back, mm-hmm. you have a place where your music can get played as opposed to like, I think of art, like I probably think about Arctic monkeys mm-hmm. in an inordinate amount because I feel like that's like a band that I haven't thought of Arctic monkeys in years. Well, that's it. That's like, I think a perfect example of a band that if they existed 10 years before they did, mm-hmm. would have been huge stadium rock, hugely successful in America. They're really successful in Europe, but like Europe is a whole different thing. Yeah. And then they just came around way too late to get the mileage out of their music that they really deserved. Because Arctic Monkeys are a pretty good band. Mm-hmm. But nobody, there's nobody to play them. There's no like, they have singles come out like, they 
sort of like again like the very limited airplay or you know they have to go other promotional routes really get hamstrung by the fact that there isn't like just contemporary rock radio for them to go play music mm-hmm. on it they're not the kind of music that is necessarily going to get played on like npr yeah uh or whatever i mean it's some markets i'm sure but not not in every market mm-hmm. so yeah so yeah so that they definitely exist um slater kinney definitely got in right under the wire and i think you know came back to with the right time yeah that's the other thing yeah and then now it's like it's weird because we're so deep into their second second era Mm -hmm. that it's like you don't really even remember that they weren't a band for a number of years or like even like their old it's very um their music has been such a far cry from the old material too Mm -hmm. that it's very easy to forget that they were a band before with a super deep catalog I, much love songs. I like half the time I forget that there were two albums before Dig Me Out. Yeah, but that's another. Well, and they're way different too. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about. One. Yeah, let's do talk it all. Songs. Let's actually talk about this album. All right. All right. So it opens with uh, the title track "Path of Wellness," which has this very catchy, almost loungy, ultra percussive opening. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to. I thought the song would be if it had a heavy drum element to it, mm-hmm. a thicker bottom. I, I might have liked it more. Although I do really like the song. It's a fun song. It's not, you know... The uh, this is a song that I said... This is one of the songs that I think is a hybrid song. Yeah. There's like... The beginning is very new. And like... The percussion is very featured on it. It's not it's a very new like album. It wasn't, yeah. I'm sure. But that was my first time. I do I like Path of Wellness and I thought it was an interesting opener like when it first came out I was like huh it kind of made me immediately start thinking about what the themes of the album might be because uh self-care is such an interesting or such a hot topic right now and like almost like a cult of self-care yeah yeah and like for people like I don't know how you feel but like I'm still my formative years like it's very I feel very out of place when like people are so like talk about self-care and stuff like that like because we were raised at a time when that just didn't exist yeah i feel like it skews me out um, it's very it's like why wouldn't she just rather ignore it wouldn't she just yeah. rather pretend like nothing's wrong yeah like it's easier yeah i don't get it that's what um, you do but the negative the the lyrics give like a negative not a negative but it it paints an obsession with self-care as maybe a negative thing mm-hmm. as it can create like a void in yourself uh, for feeling like you're not keeping up with your self-care, that things aren't meeting your expectations. At least that's how I took it. Yeah, I did too. And so I think that's an interesting take on it. It's not like um, sycophantic devotion to like the cult of self-care. There's a, a negative side to it too. Yeah. Then we go into High in the Grass, which is like some like neo-hippie song. I'm sure this is about the enjoyment of life after as the pandemic breaks or possibly just actual being fucking just, yeah, bumblebees of flowers i don't fucking literally know. being high yeah in the grass this was a song that i, I they could have done as a three-piece yeah i mean the, the the guitar this is the most i felt like 
The guitars are some of the most traditional sounding guitars on this one. I thought it sounded like jumpers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's slow. It's like kind of groovy. Like I said, it's one of those, it could have deeper meaning, but it might not have any meaning at all. I also realized, I said many years ago, after trying to understand the story behind Smoke Reverser, mm. it literally broke me from trying, like seriously, thinking too hard about any song ever again. That's funny. And that's that was my thought as I was listening to this album. Yeah, you, you might I just... I used all my juice for this lifetime. Take on, it as it comes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, uh, sorry, that's... Uh, yeah. popped in my... And then as a, this was the second single and it was really nice to hear a strong horn vocal yeah, yeah, definitely. that early in the album cycle. Mm-hmm. Like as far as like, oh, their second single, it has one, it, it's the second song in a row that has corn vocals on it, but it's a strong vo- uh, yeah. vocal lead by Corrin. And it's like, oh, maybe they're going for an, an older sound mm-hmm. or maybe they're recorrecting a little bit their, uh, their change, yeah. their stylistic changes. Uh, Worry With You. It's, it was the... Um, it's the next one? I mean, that was the first single to come out. That's the third song of the album. Yes, yeah. it was. And that's it's a fun song. It's bouncy. It's... Uh, um, it's Yeah, it's a uh, heavy bass. Yeah. This is like the new... Quintessentially their new sound. Yeah. Uh, being such a full band, being bass reliant. The lyrics are real simple. Mm-hmm. Like almost... And I again, not saying negatively, saying trite. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear those lyrics on a Slater Kinney song because I think in a punk song, you're used to very stupid lyrics. Mm-hmm. But in a Slater Kinney song, sometimes the lyrics are super impressionistic. They always sound very arty. But in this case, it is like a really basic kind of relationship song. Yeah. And then this goes back to branding that they released this as the first single. This would definitely be the hit. As I, our man would say, I my note that I wrote down. Mm-hmm. This is the manifesto for the new brand. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is yeah the most directly aimed at who the core of their audience potentially could be going forward. Mm-hmm. Mom that listens to XPN, who is young enough to go to shows, but now she's got kids that are half grown, and sometimes you want. The throwbacks, sometimes you want something that's really easily digestible. Mm-hmm. And this song's super easily digestible. Yeah, it is. And it's, I felt like I had heard this song so much. Like there's a brief period of time, I was like, I, I just was fast forwarding past it, but I'm back into it. Um, also, a video for this song. Yeah. I didn't immediately pick up that the drama, quote unquote, of the song is their apartment is too small. Oh, yeah, I didn't either, but I didn't really... I usually just listen. I didn't really watch the video. I thought watched it, like, twice. I think once, and then I showed it to Jamie once. And she's like, the apartment's too small. She might have been, yeah. That might have been where it is. I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I think one of the actresses in the video is the Fabi, Fabi Ray. Oh, she definitely is, yeah. Yes, the guitar um, player. Um, but a fun, a fun single. Yeah. This is when I... Especially listening to the song in context and how the other songs were different, that's when I really started to form the idea that they were becoming very brand conscious for the first time in their in their existence. Yeah. Method. First, this is the first song where they, I think they made a conceited effort to make it sound like a retro. Classic rock. Classic rock. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, not the last, but definitely the first. Yeah. What do you think of this one? Because I have mixed feelings. You said that I like it. It's a totally new sound. Yeah. It's the full band. I think it kind of sounds like a Rolling Stones song a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I think... It's extremely controversial, or not controversial, extremely confrontational, mm-hmm. 
to ask somebody to be nice to you, which yeah. is not something I'd ever thought about before, but it really is like really aggressive to just be like, be nice to me. Yeah. I really like the refrain with the, with the, like, I'm singing about love, but it oh. sounds like hate. Like yeah. I, that idea right. to me is interesting. Like mm-hmm. I like that a lot. And I like the refrain part mm-hmm. and Carrie does not know how to curse. Yeah. She's never known how, for some reason it's just so unnatural when she tries to curse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like the, I like the, it's like, the refrain, but I, I it's like, like the song. A, a child deliberately cursing and they don't like what, well, they're not entirely comfortable with it, mm. but it's also the, this is how I feel about her and not say she's a child or anything, but like when a child curses, deliberately curses in their mind, at least there's an added level of gravitas to it. She really winds up yeah, on and a there's, curse. Like, and like, I felt like on some level, maybe she, you know, got a lot of shit about cursing when she was a kid. Maybe your dad they, was strict. You're going to get in trouble. Yeah. yeah. I'm on my uh, fucking knees. Yeah. Like, all right, relax. You're a grown woman. Well, that's also like Jamie makes fun of her for the way she punctuates lyrics. Yeah, the, it's the Carrie style of like saying. Like, actually, the... Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that too. And I have a note about that on a later song. Yeah. But you didn't you like it I think like it's it clever. So I know it doesn't. So here's, there's a quote by, um, I believe, Roger Ebert. Ebert. Yeah. And it is that, no good movie is too long and no bad movie is too short. Yeah. And I don't know, like the second time the chorus kicks in, I just, it's right when the guitar kind of, the Jay Mascus style guitar kicks yeah. in. It's just a little too much for me. And I'm like, how long is this fucking song? I do think that the lyrics are pretty clever. Yeah. I also, I have another thought with this song that I'll address later. Yeah, Method, I, I kind of like it, but then I always get sick of it. Uh, Shadow Town. Reminds me of a lot of a song on that last Breeders album, the one that came out in 2018. Uh, yeah. They wrote a song called Metagoth. Yes. And the opening of Shadowtown sounds a lot like Metagoth. Mm. But then Shadowtown turns into a Fleetwood Mac song when it kicks in at the end. Yeah, what you just said about Method going on way too long, mm-hmm. I think Shadowtown goes on forever. No, I do too. And it's, it seemed to me like, um, it seemed like a really underdeveloped song mm-hmm. that they kept playing trying to jam their way into more form yeah and it never gets there it seemed like a like I said, it, it kind of seemed like a lyric fragment mm-hmm. and they built an entire song around it's i think the weakest song on the album yeah it just, it's the one that has cowbell which is a head scratcher and like i said it does turn into like uh when it kicks at the end basically a fleetwood mac song yeah which I, you know and it's way too it's so ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Like, I don't think that this song's going to age. Like, all the other songs, while any person would be recognized that they specifically address the pandemic, mm-hmm. I think they do have a place outside of the pandemic. And this is a song that, like, I don't think it's going to make any sense. I don't think they'll ever play it after this tour if yeah. they play it on this I tour. I don't see them playing it on this tour. I mean, I hope not. It's. I mean, I'm not... I'm, I don't plan on seeing them because I don't want to see... Um, Wilco. I don't want to see Wilco. As an aside, I would, I wouldn't have minded seeing them on this tour, but they're the same week. By like, they're separated by a day with the Alanis Morissette no, whole thing, too much. and also that might be a week. I'm moving. Spoilers. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't know yet. But anyway, yeah, it'll be a little too much. Um, if they come around again, I would maybe see them at like the Fillmore or something. It would be nice if they if they had a, a tour on their own. Yeah. Because uh, then I, I mean, they're so. I mean, that Wilco tour was planned pre-pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, and that's a huge, huge money maker. Yeah. And Wilco is the Wilco for the there for the dads, and Slater Kinney's there yeah. for the moms. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, the kids uh, can go to grandma's. Oh, so but, or the yeah, yeah, or they can come and be cool kids at the concert. Oh, the, yeah. But Slater Kinney, if you don't know, is is amazing live. Such a good live band. You don't think so? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think every now and then they fall flat, but yeah. but I've never been disappointed seeing them live. I just don't want to see Wilco or like, pay whatever they're charging to see the double. Band. I think the pro. I've only seen them once, and. The problem was <laughs> that they played songs from the center won't hold. Yeah, well, that was. Yeah. Um, but no, that was a good. I mean, uh, they were a good band. Like when they played, um, because they change up their set a lot. Mm. What was it uh, when they played Ironclad? Yeah, I remember that being a big moment because it was. They like, don't play that. Yeah, it's they have a really deep catalog too, and so, like they really play it, which and, is like mm. admirable. Oh, entertain it! I think is their most frequently played song. Uh, I could see that. They did like it, yeah. I like anyway. I like Entertain a lot. It's one and, of my favorite. Anyway, so immediately from Shadow, you have anything else to say about Shadow Town? Uh, no, just Cowbell. Favorite neighbor? I don't know. What do you? Carrie lyrics. Carrie Carrie singing at probably not her. I won't say her worst, but this is like so quintessentially the Carrie Kate. Well, I thought this was one of the hybrid songs. It is a fun song, though. Yeah. And also the fact that it comes after Shadow Town somehow. Yeah, it, it helped. It helped to get away from that Shadow Town. All right. Tomorrow's Grave is their metal song, as I like to think of it. I thought it sounded like an outtake from The Woods. I thought it sounded like The Fox a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I think, like, thematically, I was like, this is their attempt to do a heavy metal song. I, I liked that it was heavy. Um, I just thought it was nice to hear heaviness, because I think... My favorite Slater Kenny album is The Woods. Yeah, mine too. So I'm always going to really like the heavy sound from them. And it was a song that could be done as a, or was done as a three piece, mm-hmm. which is another thing that like when it happens, I enjoyed it on this album because it was like the truest callback to yeah. pre-hiatus Slater Kenny. And, and I agree. It does, especially like the middle section really doesn't like something on The Woods. Mm. CFC was um, Complex Female Characters. No, you skipped No Knives. Oh, No Knives. One would not blame you for skipping. I'll say, yeah, well, there's a reason. And it's because a reason. I don't know if this is an intro or filler. I don't think it's particularly an intro to complex female characters, but it's certainly not a song that really stands on its own. It's I not just, egregiously offensive to be on the album. It's too know. bad. If it was a CD, you would skip it. Mm-hmm. But we have to listen to it because we don't have CDs anymore. Yeah, it's so their. Uh... I don't. I really don't get it. I could see them opening a set with it. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, but I I really don't care for the song, but, and I don't get it as a song. I guess it's about being non-judgmental, maybe. Oh, I mean, I I mean, at I, one point it occurred to me it's about being in a mental institution to be uh, honest, because you can't cook with knives. But yeah. it's not the worst song in the album. It is the most forgettable song. It's just it. yeah, it's just like kind of a, it's really short, and there's not a lot. To like it. I said, I didn't even bother to make a note on it. Yeah, because I probably forgot as I was writing it. Anyway, now complex female characters. Yeah. Yeah. I like. I actually think this is. I think it's some of the better vocals on the album, especially like it has kind of the, there's the beginning part where it's very like kind of overwrought and then it goes into the more melodic part at the end. I like the, like I'm interested in the message of the song about like 
seemingly progressive men mm-hmm. who still have a real patri- patriarchal complex yeah. towards women. And I like the vocals. I thought it was another song that sounded like a classic rock song, and I like that it gets heavy at the end. My problem with this song is that there's too much shoehorning of lyric, I feel like. Yeah. Do you Fucking like, messages shit. I say, yeah, do you feel like it's kind of a minefield for two cis white men to be discussing the ways in which the song yeah. complex female characters could be improved. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's a lot of extra syllables. Mm-hmm. So I see, I know what you mean by shoehorning, yeah. but I also think that that can be hurt. I think it's a very good idea. Sometimes. Like the idea of the song is very good. Um, and there's like a lot of like, um, I don't know if syncopation is the right word, like insulator mm-hmm. Kenny music. So like, I think sometimes there are just a lot of syllables musically and vocally really hammered into a, a time signature. There's a Mommy Long Lake song called Bitch that's basically about the same That's like a that's like a But yeah, I like the vocals on this Down the Line? Yes. So here's my, I have two thoughts on this song. It reminds me a lot of Method. Yeah. That it's also like a quasi-Stones song. I would argue that the, the, the chorus redeems this song for me. So I like this song more than Method. I think on the woods, they have a, there's there's roller co- a song called Roller Coaster. Yeah, I like the song. And then there's a bonus track called Everything. Yeah, that essentially does the same thing as Roller Coaster, which is why it's a bonus track. And I feel that sort of this there's a relationship between Method and Down the Line, in that they're similar enough that I would personally cut one of them. I would have to look at that again. I didn't I didn't think of Method. I know which one you would cut. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought it sounded like a song off of No Cities. Yeah. I wrote that it, I think it's a quintessential album cut. That yeah. it's a song that you will never think about ever until you listen to the album. And then you'll go, oh yeah, this song's on this album. Yeah. And I, it's another, I don't think it's a song that they would play. And you said, I just think it's like, it's a deep track. I don't know that it, you could go as far as to say it was filler if it was like a a longer album or an mm-hmm. album with like more killers on it. Yeah. You might cut it. Because it, it does run under the radar. Yeah, and I think this album runs in just under 40 minutes. It's not a long album. Which to I was Houston surprised, by the way. Just was like, oh, it's like shorter than I thought. Yeah. And then the final song I didn't write down. Bring Mercy. Bring Mercy. Uh, I thought, so whereas I thought the one song there was, um, I thought was kind of about their brand, I thought this was sort of an album thesis track. Mm-hmm. And it pairs with the, it pairs with the first track, Path of Wellness. Yeah. Because Path of Wellness is about personal crisis, mm-hmm. and this song is about like a societal crisis. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of is a big picture song. Mm-hmm. The organ is the lead instrument on it, which I thought was interesting because yeah. nobody in the band plays an organ. So that's always an interest. I'm always interested in how musicians choose to have other people do really prominent things on songs they're writing, where it's just like, I wrote this song. Can we get an organ player to like do some organ shit on well, it? Well, I was wondering. It's funny because again, going back to the all the percussion yeah. and like the drumming, especially on the first song, neither Carrie or Corin are percussionists. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's in their wheelhouse after X amount of years to compose this kind of beats, but I kind of doubt it. Just from other very few people who aren't drummers are particularly good at composing that kind of yeah i mean i would argue it's, you know like session people are probably really used to that and like we probably don't realize how much 
like there's this whole myth of genius thing mm-hmm. where we want to believe that like every artistic idea or every idea comes from an, uh, a single point yeah. and like a person's unique specialness and in reality it's a combination of hard work develop skill development mm-hmm. trial and error r&d and then collaboration yeah and so like musically a lot of the songs you think about as being like a person's song mm-hmm. probably had contributions from a lot of outside factors like studio musicians yeah. uh who you can i mean i know there's like documentaries and stuff about mm-hmm. like uh, like in the shadow of Motown and the Muscle Shoals mm. documentary and stuff where they talk about how these people who were basically anonymous created this super seminal music. Maybe if you're a musician, it's mm-hmm. kind of understood who fills what role yeah, and unless what like, you can ask people. Unless you're know. Beck who's playing every instrument yeah. on an album or... Yeah, or like Prince who can play every Prince. instrument or Zappa. I mean, David Bowie, Zappa. I mean, there are people who do that, but I don't think there's a lot of... I don't no, know. No, anyway, no, it's no. weird. Yeah, um, I doubt. I doubt that... That like Carrie and Corin were like had the wood blocks out or were know how to play the organ or whatever. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. The fact that there's a very prominent organ on the song and it's like you're like, yeah, just go do your organ shit. Mm. You probably have to be diplomatic, where it's just like, yeah, squirt out some organ stuff, <laughs> yeah, and then you know. like they they do it, and then you're like, nah, I'll do it can you I make it, it better? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, you probably have to have a pretty thick skin if yeah. you're. A studio. Well, I think you must dead into it. I mean, I don't know. Like, mm. I, it's always weird. Because, again, like going back to garbage. Garbage's tour, touring basic bassist is Eric Avery. Yeah. You know who was a founder of Jane. Was one of the two guys from Jane's Addiction. Yeah. And one has played basically as a touring bassist on so many different bands, and he's just content to do that for the most part. And every now and then he just shits out his own. Yeah. Work. But like and that shit's out. But. That's what Mark Lanigan's like that yeah. too. Where I listen to an interview with him, and it's like there's the Mark Lanigan solo stuff, mm-hmm. and then it's him playing with I probably most notably Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. But like his job as a musician versus his creative output that a fraction of the people are interested in. But yeah. like it's how he makes. And it I think there are people who are perfectly, you know, that's what you. Yeah. Do. I don't know. It's it's an industry I find fascinating, but not mm-hmm. enough to be a musician. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a whole other thing. Especially, yeah, at this age. Do you, yeah, well, you could, you know, if you're looking for a career change, you pick up an axe. Mm. So what, my one other thing about this album, then that's that concludes the album. Yeah. Did you talk about Bring Mercy? We, a developing thesis of my own on the last songs of albums. Mm. It's still developing. Um, it might be a topic on a future episode. Mm. I like it. It does have a good, it does sort of put a bow on it. I don't know that it quite entirely fits with the theme of this album just because again ultimately is a plea for understanding and a lot of the album is not necessarily about that it's interesting that you say that because the one thing left unsaid about the album to me Mm -hmm. yeah is i was struck by these were i would call them like bedroom songs yeah is there a lot of songs about intimate interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and i think from like single points of view addressing other single points of view so like two people talking hashing out their specific relationships Mm -hmm. which is not something that i would have ascribed to sleater kinney before this Mm -hmm. who i would have thought of as a much bigger picture band that sang about much more abstract experiences and ideas yeah and so i thought this album 
in particular really dialed down the scope of the songwriting to be about things that people specifically could directly relate to. Yeah. According to Alison Bechtel, every song on the album is about fucking. <laughs> if you watch the uh, Path no. of Wellness... Um, oh, I didn't watch Which is that. something else we're going to talk about. Um, Their media output. Yeah. So they've been playing basically the same four-song rotation for everything. So it's the first three songs. Mm-hmm. They've been playing out and you switch it, you know, Path of Wellness, High in the Grass, Worry With You. I cannot for the life of me remember what the fourth song, it might be Method actually, is the fourth song they've been sort of playing. I've only seen two live performances and they didn't, it's... Do you um, remember what the other song, like... It was one beat on the, it was the Tiny Dust concert mm-hmm. and they played those three songs in one beat. So I, I think I, they played, I maybe I'm just imagining, I don't know. Oh, that's a weird, that was a very weird, odd version of one beat they played. Yeah, with like a... Piano and, yeah. and uh, bass. Yeah, it's like almost an unrecognizable. I mean, it's a hard song to do. And as I said, yeah. on the uh, Carrie's hands were bright red, and I just happened to look at one point. I was like, "Well, that thumb's red. I wonder if they're playing the guitar." It's like, no, she looks like she has raw. Yeah, you're probably bathing and sanitizer twenty times a day. Yeah, hands, maybe, maybe she's like, um, she can. She's canning tomatoes. Yeah, it's a lot like, of, a lot she's of like, shit. I was hands. just doing that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have time to clean. So the other thing is they, they produced this album themselves. Yeah, I noticed Which that. I think is probably a key piece of the puzzle. And it is interesting. M- maybe in part because they feel more ownership on this album. They're making, is whether they're making a more considered effort at branding. Like they partnered with Amazon. Oh, really? Well, I think that's what the Path of Wellness, I think, is an Amazon thing. Uh-huh. Which, if you didn't see it, I can sort of give you the rundown on it really quick. I, uh, I mean, I, you told me about it before. So I know that it was a somewhat tongue-in-cheek exploration of the songs on the album. For the audience out there, uh, Path of Wellness, the special, which was their live stream, it's done, it's styled as essentially an infomercial. It's actually styled as like a self-help show called Path of Wellness. And they're talking about the album Path of Wellness. And there's a lot of weird things that go in the album. Like there's, they perform, I think, four songs on the album, the three I mentioned, and maybe Method. And the costume changes, and a big thing is they do reenactments where it's just completely different people pretending or acting as Carrie and Corin, and just, they have a reenactment of their songwriting process, and it's Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally as Carrie and Corin, just being very intentionally poorly acted, disinterested recreation. Like, at one point, Weird Al plays one of them, yeah. and... That's kind of weird. Miranda July is one of them. So it seems it seems very. I mean, again, as far as branding, like this is all very on brand. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Comedy mm-hmm. for a certain generation and also certain mm-hmm. view. You know, viewership that is going to both appreciate mm-hmm. an appearance by like Miranda July and Nick Offerman. And like I said, and then the big one that uh, Tignataro. Yeah. Who. Carrie Brownstein has, like, apparently a very big girl crush on, well, oh, crush right. on, unapologetically. Alison Bechtel, mm. who I recognize, and apparently, like, what I've been telling people, no one else does. So, Alison Bechtel. You, yeah, I mean, some people, I'm sure, Googled it, and then they went, oh, yeah. But, like, they didn't introduce her. They, you know, she was, like, playing, like, Oh, they Tucker. didn't say this is. Like, Weird Al is, like, Carrie Brownstein, and this is Carrie. So, so, people are watching it, and they're like, huh, they got Nick Offerman. We'd be like, yeah, they got this person, this person. That indie actress I sort of recognize. Some extra. They probably thought this Alison Bechtel. They either thought this Alison Bechtel person is somebody who I don't know who I should know. Or 
they randomly cast a real actress for one part. As I said, in Wolf of Wall Street, mm. when Fran Lebowitz shows up as the judge. Yeah. Like, well, the first time I saw it, I was like, that person looks so distinct, they must be someone. Right. Because you would never cast... That person is far too ugly to not, I mean, be, I mean, a, to not be a real person. And Alison Bechtel is very... Very tall, lanky, and androgynous, and she was an underground. She is an underground comic, com- uh, not comic, comic author. Comic author. What do you call? It? Yeah, it's comic book author. Comic book author, and I can't remember the name of her her seminal comic. It was something like Dykes and Chains or something like that. Mm. And very transgressive. Her probably in pop culture, her greatest like point her of reference known. is something called the Bechdel Test, somewhat misconstrued from a single comic she did where. Two people are talking about seeing movies, and one of them goes, I only see a movie if it passes this criteria, and it's the Bechtel test criteria, which is two women both have to have names in the conversation, have a conversation not about a man. And the punchline of that joke is the last movie that the character was able to see using that criteria was Alien. Yeah. It's a very unusual thing. It's branding. The other notable thing I took is they have a special thanks section, but there was like an up next logo on YouTube blocking it so you can only see like a quarter of the names. Oh, that's fine. That was my first realization that they're going very specifically towards pushing this album in a way that they probably would not have pushed anything else. Aside from, like, I'm sure every other time they did an album, they just relied on interviews, media interviews to promote the album and maybe a video or two or a lyric video or something. And podcasts, but not to the extent I feel like they're doing now, but that's also because podcasting is a much more a much bigger deal. Yeah, bigger deal. Looking at how they're branding and the fact that they produced this album on their own. So the thing that I noticed because I only watched a couple of live performances, mm-hmm. uh, mainly as interested in the band that they were going to use. Yeah, is this the live staging mm-hmm. that they used on both the Late Show and the um, Tiny Dust concert? I don't know if it was like this in the the YouTube video. Sort of, yeah. They definitely had. We're going for a similar. So it's uh, Carrie and Corin in the foreground or in the front with primary key lights on them. Fabi in the midground with kind of a half light on the her, Mm -hmm. and then the bottom half of the band in the background in relative darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a pretty clear message that the band is these two women, Mm -hmm. and I think there's slight theatrics which actually in the tiny dust concert get written up as authentic interactions and like in my head i'm like i don't know how authentic i feel like authentic but also authentically staged Mm -hmm. to where it's like corn shoots carry a glance and it's like yeah i don't i don't know if that wasn't i think it's something that happens and yeah i think it's like the susanna hoffson walk like an egyptian Mm -hmm eyes, eyes, eyes thing where it's like, yeah, I did that every time I played that song yeah. because that's something that I would do. And then it's in the video. So it's half contrived and half organic. Yeah. I definitely got a sense that they were presenting themselves as the artistic couple mm-hmm. that was birthing the, the album. And also like, I think just the nature of a lot of the songs, I think also playing on the notion that they used to be an actual romantic couple. Yeah. And messes with your persona of like what you thought of mm-hmm. about the band and their personal lives prior to this, not messes with it in a mm-hmm. bad way, but certainly like I think of Corin as being married to uh, Lance. Lance Banks. 
and having children. And then I, you know, like Carrie as being uh, a more solo oriented person and stuff. And then now they're singing songs about like worry with you and stuff. And it's mm-hmm. very hard to not hear that song as them singing to each other because they, yeah. I mean, they're literally singing to each other, but motivated as being sing to each other, even though it's probably, you know, they're singing to other partners yeah. in, in reality. Well, there's a song on Cinnamon Hold Love. Yeah. It's essentially the same, you know. Yeah. And another song that um, Carrie doesn't know how to curse them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Looks around. I said it. So I have one last point to make, but I'm going to circle around it because Fabby. Yeah. So Oliver Sacks, the late great Oliver Sacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was interested in what. You know, what behavioral psychologist, you know, wrote, maybe a psychiatrist, wrote all these books on different types of, you know, neurotypical people and whatnot. Awakenings is based on a book he wrote. And um, what's the other one, the Mars one? Uh, Anthropologist on Mars, Mars is about yeah. Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin, yeah. That Val Kilmer movie where he is blind and then he gets an operation and he can see. It's not a good movie, but do you know the movie? Mira Sorvino's I, The Woman. I can, I can think of the uh, cover. I don't remember what it's called. That's based on an Oliver Sacks. Oh, okay. Matter of fact, Robin Williams in Awakenings is supposed to be Oliver Sacks. Okay. So in one of his books, it might actually be The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Mm-hmm. He has a chapter on Stephen Hawking's. Like, you go back to like 80 Stephen Hawking's when he would lecture, when he was a lecturing professor. He had this fucking young, ripped... Like, Aussie dude who was essentially his translator in his hands. Mm. It would kind of be like, kind of like even a, like, kind of brash and kind of a dicky. Not like, not like a, a thing you'd wear, but an actual, like a little bit of a dick. Yeah. And Alversack's theory was, it Stephen Hawking used this guy as his avatar. And that's how he really wanted people to see the world, is as this guy. And to some extent, I wonder if the fact that Fabi is so forefront, and I probably said her name wrong again. No, you said Fabi. Fabi, right. who, you know, she she has her magazine, you know, she, she's her agency. I did watch some of her stuff as well. They're trying to bring her way more in the forefront. I wonder to some extent they want her, you know, sort of the, if not the the one they have chosen metaphorically to replace them, just as garbage reference. On some level, Shirley Manson has chosen Arrow to Wild. To mm. succeed her in her head, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because I do think that, like, I think there's two things. Mm-hmm. The first thing is is that you could not have the message or the point of view that Slater Kinney has and diminish the role of a person like um, like Fabi Reyna mm-hmm. without being hypocritical. Yeah. So, like, if Fabi Reyna is in your band... Mm-hmm. And you're Slater Kinney, you can't have her be in the back in the dark with everybody else because of what you're singing about or what you've historically represented. Yeah. And then, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. she's also such an ideal representation of probably everything that they were trying to get done, especially earlier, Mm -hmm. to where it was like opening up that music, making it more inclusive. Yeah. And inspiring and encouraging young girls Mm -hmm. to become musicians in their same vein in like a traditionally male dominated music genre. Mm -hmm. And then also a person who has her own virtuosity and style. So like she is really a perfect avatar for 
the thesis of Slater Kenny. Mm-hmm. And normally you would just talk about that in an abstract way. Somebody might write an article about how without Slater Kinney, there is no Fabi Reina, mm-hmm. but to join the two up in an actual venture mm-hmm. is probably something that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to do in most places. And so it is, it does fit mm-hmm. as, and it is like cloned being John Malkovich thing yeah. where it's just like, well, maybe uh, in 30 years, the band will be Fabi and two other people and yeah. it'll be called Slater Kinney still. Mm-hmm. And it's just like inside behind her eyes is Carrie and Corey yeah. in their I'll red pantsuits. Yeah. yeah. Like, I like, ah, uh, we're still alive. No, you're right. That is, that is, there's a real duality there. That's pretty interesting. And also she's a musician who, again, going back to earlier, earlier points in an era where unless you achieve a certain level of success early on, or you're already big, you probably can't have a full-time career as a musician anymore. No. You know, there's a a dead Kennedy's lyric from Chicken Chick Conformist. Yeah. How harder core than thou for a year or two that it's time to get a real job? Which is not quite the point of that song, but that's sort of like the reality. A lot of people like, like I mean You can kinda hang, but it's not sustainable. Like I listened to an interview recently with Stephanie Luke of the Coat Hangers, and she's um and the Coat Hangers are a band that I feel like they came out five years earlier. They probably could have also sustained themselves longer. Mm. Even though I think at least one of them... It doesn't, this is a Coat Hangers. But anyway, Stephanie Luke, who you know has been in this band that's like 12 years old, was talking about offhandedly how she's gone back to school to study um, X, X-ray technology. Mm. So she has something to fall back on. Right. But anyway, that's beside the point. they are going to hit. You're going to age out. Yeah. Of that life. And that's another thing. You just age out. And yeah. It's just shitty. Um, so here's my point. And this sort of is going to go back to that quote I read way back so long ago mm. in this podcast. Consider that um, during Centerwood Hold, Janet Weiss leaves the band. Ultimately, if you follow sort of the, the story, um, it was because they did not want her to be a creative partner in the band anymore. They wanted her to be the drummer. Mm. And the fact that St. Vincent was sort of brought in while they were having issues, my, my thesis would be, this is, uh, this is the album they wanted to do after No Cities to Love in some form, not necessarily the form it's in. And Janet's presence was sort of an adverse presence because she wanted to be a creative force of the band. And St. Vincent was brought in, and they, everyone's like, it was Janet's suggestion to bring in St. Vincent as producer, was the compromise that gave you Centerward Hold. Mm. And ultimately, this is the band, the album they would have done on some form, which is two people and a studio of musicians behind them. Yeah, and it's... I thought that it was interesting that Angie Boylan was the drummer on that tour. Like, I think it's really hard to not look at the dynamics between two older established musicians Mm -hmm. and the drummer that they bring on to tour with them Mm -hmm. was a North Jersey punk band drummer who's like 20 years younger than they are. So like would have grown up idolizing them Mm -hmm. and also has the not disadvantage, but the power dynamics that come with such a big age Mm -hmm. difference. And then also I believe works or worked in some part as a studio drummer. Yeah. So it's like, really 
a person who is there to drum the way we want them to drum. Yeah. Uh, which is like, as you, you have the bad taste of the Janet exit in your mouth, it's hard to not assign significance to that. Uh, I wonder if they had scrapped those sessions and started as a made an album as a duo from jump without using the without using or maybe reworking the center won't hold stuff uh how that would have turned out but also there's probably like there's a fiscal reality where that probably just was not going to happen because they had tours lined up Mm -hmm. and they had money sunk into it and janet got through the process like came all the way through the process so I, their hands were probably tied as to whether or not they were going to put out any of that material. And then just, you know, to, to sort of defend the other side, you know, going back to people who can work and who can't and sustain themselves. I mean, Janet works a straight job. Yeah. And whether she had the availability as opposed to the other two mm. to just, you know, we're just going to fuck around and record for months. Right. I don't know. But anyway, it's just a weird thing because I do think that there's something to be said. I think that album... I mean, it's not a bit like sort of Kitty is in a band that sort of spills secrets. No. Unless Janet Weiss writes her own mm. memoir and just sort of dishes dirt. But. I think one day there will both be, I think what's going to happen is one day there'll be a reconciliation and you'll get the version of what happened mm-hmm. through the lens of they've reconciled and what are, like, I think it'll be a collaborative message on the strife of that era. I don't think it's going to be like one side. I don't think it's going to be Janet talking about the other two or the other two talking about Janet. Mm -hmm. I think it's all three of them are going to agree on an odd brand message to put out and it'll come with, you know, probably accompany some sort of reunion effort, either a reunion tour or a reunion album or something. I think they'll tour. I think, and I don't know. They'll they'll tour one of their older albums. They'll do the uh, like the that's big. Like they'll play like "Dig Me Out of the Woods" or something in its right. entirety. Or they could do a stand where they do the we'll play one album a night for ten nights or whatever. Yeah. Like uh, what's them called? Uh, oh, who did that? Bad Religion did it relatively yeah. recently. Uh, everybody does it. Yeah. Like it's not it's not an unusual thing. Um, Bouncing Souls did it. A lot of people do it. Didn't a uh, Weezer do it? Yeah, did probably. They play, like like Pinkerton one night. Pinkerton, I heard the greatest thing about, this is not something I made up, but um, I read and I thought it was so apropos. They said Pinkerton is the greatest incel core album of all time because it's just about how he pissed off at girls that won't fuck him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care for Weezer. I'm not a big Weezer fan. Different podcast. Yeah. Anyway, I think we're going to wrap it up. All right. We can fit almost two, 40, so 40. 120, we could actually fit two uh, Path of Wellnesses in this podcast. Yeah. All right. All right. All right I recommended, recommended album. If you haven't yeah. listened to it or purchased it and were soured on the shitty taste of The Center Will Not Hold. Which uh, Center Won't Hold is the album. I'm thinking of the poem. Yeah. Um, the po- It's one of the rare instances where the poem is better than the album. And I don't have... I have issues with the album. I don't think I have the same issues quite... Is you? Well, I just, I'm never going to listen to it again. I never bought it. Did you buy it? I I pre-ordered it before, really. I got the CD. When I ordered tickets, I got the CD. And I'm like, if I ever want to listen to it, I can have the CD or put it on Spotify. But I'm never going to put it on Mm -hmm. to listen to it. I should probably listen to it again. I don't remember almost anything that's on it. But I just remember, eh. 
yeah. real. But in any case, definitely worth checking out this one. Uh, a really strong effort from a band in their, uh, you know, especially yeah. at this late stage to be a band that's been a, a band for a pro- approaching 30 years I at this point, the, probably. Yeah. And mm-hmm. with a lot of albums out to still yeah. be able to put out an album that's this good is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye.